Hello and welcome to the Oxford Policy Pod. My name is Lucas Pombo and I'm joined by Melissa Lockett and Ivan Chanis. Together, we will be taking a deep dive into Latin American politics and the influence of China and the United States in the region. Join us while we talk to major political stakeholders in the midst of an electoral process that could have an impact not only in Latin America, but in the global geopolitical chess. Over the past few months, elections were held in four Latin American countries, tilting the political axis of the region to the left. In Chile, after a period of civil unrest that led to a constitutional convention, former student leader Gabriel Boric won the presidential election, beating the ultra-conservative candidate Jose Antonio Cast. In Peru, left-wing candidate Pedro Castillo defeated the right-wing candidate Keiko Fujimori, daughter of the former president Alberto Fujimori, who is currently serving a 25-year sentence for human rights crimes. In Honduras, Xiomara Castro became the first woman to hold the title of president, putting an end to a 12-year right-wing government that began after a coup against former president Manuel Zelaya. In Ecuador, former president Rafael Correa suffered a major loss after his pupil, leftist candidate Andreas Arauz, was defeated by former banker and businessman Guillermo Lasso. This year will continue to determine the future of the region with two elections in the coming months. In Colombia, former guerrilla member and Senator Gustavo Petro is leading the polls, followed closely by former mayor Federico Gutierrez, who has the support of the current government coalition, and the former mayor of Bucaramanga and populist candidate Rodolfo Hernández. In Brazil, former president and leader of the Workers' Party Lula da Silva is the favorite to win the presidential election in which he faces the sitting president Jair Bolsonaro. We talked to Francisco Santos, former Colombian vice president and former ambassador to the United States, about why leftist political projects are better positioned in the current election process in the region. Latin America in the year 2001 had only one autocracy, Cuba. We signed, a, precisely the same day of, of 9-11, we signed the Democratic Charter of the OAS, which is a, a, the regional a, a political institution, with only one dictatorship. Today we have Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, Bolivia is going that way. Argentina has lost a lot of its successes in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, of a, 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 let's say, strength, a strength of, uh, of democracy. We will see what will happen in Peru and we will see what will happen in Chile. So, uh, so uh, it's a very difficult situation in that sense. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I think for the first time, the U.S. says we need to protect, and I think here too, In the, in the region, we need to protect democracy. We need to fight against autocracies. I think the world is changing into a, a, a bipolar world of autocracies versus democracies. And, uh, and, and I think this is going to change the way we talk to each other, the preferences in economic uh, uh, access, etc. So we're just starting in this game. But I think uh, the invasion of Ukraine uh, it really accelerates uh, this discussion uh, uh, dramatically. Santos also spoke about the effect of decades of these political narratives and recent electoral turnouts. The disillusionment with democracy and with liberty, which is a narrative that the extreme left has been able to build, which is something that has been uh, brewing for decades. Uh, without a doubt, uh, uh, El Foro de Sao Paulo, which was the creation of the extreme left, uh, Cuba, FARC, uh, ELN, uh, terrorist groups, uh, Uh, the, the most left-wing uh, and radical organizations in the region started building a narrative that says democracy doesn't work, um, uh, liberty uh, doesn't work for the poor, and and all of the all of the the successes that democracy has had in the past 40 years in the region 
uh, were uh, were of so, sort of taken taken out of context and 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 put in a different uh, uh, view. And that's what uh, that's what gets the election of uh, of Boric in in, in Chile. Uh, Chile is the country that is almost ready to join what what we would call the first world, uh, the the highest development, the highest amount of the middle class. Uh, Peru is was undergoing exactly the same direction as Chile, and uh, and now Colombia, which uh, when you look at Colombia forty years ago or fifty years ago to today, the difference. And the quality of health services of opportunities is 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 dramatically different. So 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 I would say that narrative is what uh, what has changed politics in Latin America, and 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 it's a narrative first that is false, second that has an ideological background and an ideological reason, and third it goes uh, after elections so that uh, what happened in Venezuela can can happen in countries like Chile, like Peru, and probably like Colombia, which is the crown jewel. We also spoke with the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs of Honduras, Gerardo Torres, who has a different diagnosis for the transformation of the political landscape in Latin America. Well, I think that if you believe that left and right are synonyms of authoritarianism and democracy, then I think that there's a, a huge lack of information And um, and I think that people that say that probably are just repeating uh, propaganda or or slogans of campaign slogans. We have seen countries that are, are have respected democracy. Uh, there are uh, socialists and there are capitalists. There are left winged or right wing. I think that democracy does not has to do that if you're right or, or you're left wing. Um, and we also have seen authoritarianism from the right. Uh, and I can tell it by my personal ex uh, experience, Honduras was for 12 years a very authoritarian government, a right wing government, pro-capitalist, pro the United States, and in, the, in their speech, in their discourse, uh, pro-democracy, and pro-human rights, but it was a profoundly authoritarian uh, government controlled by the military forces and by a man that has direct links with drug trafficking and criminal activities. So there, there is authoritarianism from the right and they're also from the left and there's democracy from the right and there's democracy from the left. They are not synonyms. There are different things. One is the philosophy and the objective, the understanding that you have about your democracy, of your economy, uh, and the other is your understanding and your respect of democratic principles. To better understand this electoral process, we talked to Dr. Marien Jimenez Morales, Maris Klodowska Curie Fellow and expert in Latin American politics. When we look uh, in more broader terms, uh, we do see that the right in Latin America uh, is still strong, right? Uh, for example, we see the case of uh, Guillermo Lasso in, in Ecuador. We see uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil prior to Boric winning. Piñera was um, in, in, uh, in the presidency. So, yeah. During this uh, cycle, uh, we do have presidents that are more left-leaning or formally left-leaning or being supported by uh, left-leaning uh, uh, parties. But I think it's also interesting to look into the differences within these projects, right? So, for example, while you have a, a Boric in Chile trying to 
promote a more social democratic uh, uh, government. You do have a formerly yeah, left-leaning uh, or supported by a Marxist-Leninist party uh, in, uh, in Peru with uh, Pedro Castillo, but those two projects in themselves are very different, right? So while one is looking to really uh, create a, a prosperous and more democratic aspect in uh, society for women and also for uh, minority groups, you have in, in, in Peru, you have someone like Pedro Castillo, who's also, you know, promoting uh, very restrictive uh, policies or having uh, very, you know, tough uh, policies towards, for example, migrants, particularly coming from Venezuela. So, so you see these tensions within these projects, and and that tells us that there isn't only one left in Latin America, uh, but many. And as well in the right, I would say it's the same. You have more democratic, uh, right, um, liberal uh, projects, but you also have more illiberal or more authoritarian uh, projects within within the right. And why these um, left-leaning, um, whether formally or also in practice, movements are, are important in Latin America and why people keep voting for them is very obvious. High inequality, poverty, exclusion, uh, the consequences of COVID. So, uh, you know, the more unequal uh, wealth distribution it looks like in Latin, in Latin America, I would say the more uh, these groups um, will, you know, will be appealing to the society. And the same in Colombia as well, right? You have uh, Petro who makes uh, formally some really important claims like inequality, redistribution, um, inclusion. Uh, but at the same time, he he has been very populist and has some illiberal tendencies as well. Uh, also, the relationship with, you know, Chavismo is something that comes up um, often, uh, which, again, takes us back to the broader que question of democracy and autocracy uh, beyond, you know, left and right leaning uh, discussions. Dr. Jimenez also expanded on the role of political opposition in the Latin American context. What you see in, in Latin America, which is a region, again, as we were discussing, torn between democracy, autocracy, but also regimes in the middle, it's really important to look at the type of strategies that oppositions use uh, to either prevent autocratization from going forward or actually to restore democracy. So here, for example, uh, my work on, on Venezuela, what it shows is that uh, radical extra institutional um, mechanisms and strategies, also the work by my colleague Laura Gamboa, uh, show that they do have a, a, a negative impact overall on the way that uh, politics uh, develops and, and unravels. Um, and so it's important, again, if you are uh, fighting to restore democracy, to be credible, to be an, a credible alternative for power, you do need to commit to, um, well, democratic practices and democratic discourses, right? Uh, and what we see, for example, in the case of Venezuela is that you have an opposition that has long really run on a platform of anti-Chavismo. Uh, it it re really is uh, intolerant sometimes uh, towards other 
you know, perspectives and other strategies um, coming from different sectors that also are not aligned with the government. So although it is hard to analyze oppositions because it's a very moving, it's a moving um, actor and it's a very heterogeneous actor, um, it's important to look at the way that they engage with with these governments, how they relate, for example, to the Supreme Court, to electoral management bodies, to journalists. What we often see is that uh, formerly democratic leaders, for example, uh, attack uh, the free press when when it's not convening, uh, convenient, sorry, for uh, for their narratives or for their politics. So that's also, for example, something that we have seen uh, in in El Salvador recently. Um, so uh, li- democracies uh, need Democrats. They need democratic uh, politicians. Uh, that's obviously a very intuitive argument that has already been shown in the literature. And so when you have in the opposition camp forces that aren't necessarily committed to liberal democratic practices, then that might have uh, also a negative impact on how citizens relate to democracy, on the future or political trajectories of each country. But is the electoral process in the region a battlefield between left and right or between democracy and authoritarianism? This is what Vice Minister Torres told us. I think that people in Latin America are voting for the left because the right hasn't been brought the responses and the answers that people need. They're not voting... Uh, If you're voting, you're voting for democracy, but you're also voting for an economic change. Neoliberalism, uh, these big controls of big companies that take control over our rivers, over our mountains, over our valleys, are not what people want. Poor people want a chance for uh, wealth, for development, for a job, for the respect of their basic rights. And... They feel that this right-wing, pro-neoliberal, privatizing, uh, anti-social benefits of parties do not represent their interests. Their interests, and they're voting for uh, parties for political options that are fighting against corruption. That are uh, talking about social. Uh, public health, public education, that are talking about uh, workers' rights, that are talking about women's rights, that are talking about uh, human rights in general. So it is a vote for the left. It is a vote against these conservative, far right-wing parties that haven't brought any development and answers for the people, especially for the most poor people in Latin America. For Mr. Santos, in these elections, democracy is at stake. That's where the narrative becomes very, very important because autocracies, in the end, what they do is destroy power and destroy richness and destroy opportunity. Look, Cuba in 60 years hasn't built anything. Venezuela in 20 years destroyed practically the richest country in the region. Argentina, with that pseudo-autocratic type of government in, in, in which you captured the executive power captures uh, the judicial system uh, uh, has destroyed richness like like uh, you know 30 40 years ago it was one of the richest countries uh, uh, in the region so 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 uh, this type of development and this type of governments what they are doing are destroying people's lives and you will see what will happen with with Nicaragua in the next five years uh, they're, they're going to, to to start having big problems so 
So, so I think it's it, 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 they should start wearing, and I think that's where we need to create the narrative to show them that in this fight between autocracy and democracy, democracy is way better with all the imperfections. And it's not a perfect model, but, uh, but, uh, but it's way better model than what uh, the autocrats can, can provide. Obviously, the autocrats have the narrative of lying, uh, creating beautiful scenarios, uh, uh, changing the world expropriation for democratization and, and kill the economic model and kill the political model in the, in the meantime. Let's listen to Dr. Jimenez's insightful perspective. We do see ideological struggles and discussions and debates, and that's very natural. That's uh, what occurs also in other uh, parts of the of the world. But we do have increasingly uh, this debate, or uh, yeah, or a continuous debate uh, about democracy and autocracy and all these regimes in the middle, right? So there are different categories. Um, and concepts that have been developed in political science, for example, hybrid regimes or competitive authoritarian regimes, electoral authoritarian regimes, or more hegemonic electoral authoritarian regimes. And uh, what we see is that sometimes uh, there are left-leaning authoritarian governments, and at other times we see author- um, authoritarian governments that are more akin to right-leaning uh, uh, ideologies. So when we look back, we see Fujimori uh, in Peru, currently uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, also Bukele in, in El Salvador. But you also see, for example, uh, yeah, let's say entrenched authoritarian regimes in Nicaragua, Cuba and Venezuela. So the debate uh, is on, yeah. Uh, the broad ideological spectrum. And as I was saying, it's not just the left being authoritarian, but also uh, right-leaning governments and parties and leaders being non-democratic. We've heard our guests expressing their views on the political transformation of Latin America. But this transformation is happening while the region's relationship with major stakeholders like China and the United States is also changing. Let's hear their impressions. China for Latin America has been a very distant strength or force uh, it hasn't been so important in our history and it hasn't been so um like at the hand we have a lot of presence of chinese citizens um, that have migrated and have made their lives in latin america but uh, besides that we haven't had much relationship with china more than uh, people that were interested in, in politics or were interested in the Chinese revolution or their participation or their point of view during the Cold War. China hasn't been so important in, in, our, in our historical, uh, in our history. But uh, in recent years, in the last 20 years that China has had an important economic development and is looking to find new markets and to increase its presence in America, many people have seen China as a way to reduce the dependence uh, that they have or the countries have with the United States. And in that sense, China has become a new and everyday more important actor in that in that matter because our political and military dependence, the United States has to do with our economic dependence uh, to to them. And if you reduce that economic dependence, then you reduce the political and the military. 
Um, so in, in, I think that China has become an important actor in that matter. When they started making uh, agreements with countries in Latin America, uh, when countries in Latin America stopped recognizing Taiwan and began to recognize China, um, and with the increase of Chinese uh, economic presence in the region, I think that they have become a, a key actor for countries that are looking for new markets and are looking to find economic development that not has to do uh, with a direct relation or dependence with the United States. We have to understand that China has become a very big player in the region. China is the number one uh, um, uh, the country with number one trade with Argentina, Brazil, Peru, Chile, almost all of the countries in the region with the exception of Mexico, Colombia, and Paraguay. Uh, so all of the countries have a very big stake. And uh, China has moved from soft power to very hard power. And I'll give you three examples. The foreign minister of Bolsonaro, Sergio Araújo, just gave an interview saying, I was taken out of the post because of Chinese pressure. And I said, wow. First of all, if that happens because of American pressure, it would have been a big scandal. This practically flew under the radar. And I, and I spoke to people in, in Brazil that know about uh, how much uh, influence does Brazil have, uh, does China have in Brazil? And literally what they told me is China, the Chinese ambassador is more powerful than the governor of Sao Paulo. And that's because all of the products that they produce uh, 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 are being sold in China, or most of them. Argentina, President Macri, when he arrived in power, wanted to renegotiate the deal that uh, Cristina Kirchner did with, uh, with China regarding the satellite bases in the southern part of Argentina. And the Chinese said, sure, we'll renegotiate, but we'll start renegotiating your quota of uh, beef to China. What happened? He said, okay, we can renegotiate that. And the last one, Ecuador. I spoke to a, to a former a, a minister of the Equatorian government of, of, uh, of uh, Lenin Moreno's government. And she said, eh, look, we found out that the fishing fleet of China was in the waters of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the islands, uh, 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 Galapagos Islands, a very, very, very protected uh, area. We sent a few of our ships, the, the small ships to take them out. And we receive a call from China saying, look, if you move our ships out, we will not buy your, uh, your, uh, your shrimp, uh, 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 that, the, the shrimp that you produce. What happened? Well, fish. So, so they're moving from soft power to hard power. And I have no doubt that the view of Boric and the view of Castillo uh, and the view of Petro, of this type of, of uh, new imperialism, because it doesn't come from the U.S., It's a lot more, they're a lot more open to it. And, uh, and, uh, and even though they will uh, regret it, uh, uh, China is gaining a lot more power in the region. Venezuela has become a great example. So, so, so China is a big player now. And I think these electoral uh, changes to the left, and sometimes we would call extreme left because uh, we will see how body governs uh, 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 and Castillo uh, they certainly benefit China and, and make the situation of Colombia even more important as a, as, as a balance of, um, of American power in the region. You can see, for example, the relationship of the United States with Venezuela is starting to change. 
and it's changing because the need for oil. Uh, Venezuela is the biggest producer of oil that we have in the continent and one of the biggest in the world. Uh, and the United States sees that its contradiction with Russia. Um, they need the support of countries like Venezuela. And also uh, the example of Honduras, uh, the United States and Honduras, or oh, the party that is now in power, was 12 years in the streets as a resistance front pointing out the United States' participation in the coup d'etat of 2009 and the support of the governments that came after. But now we have a good relationship. Uh, and I think that that good relationship all has something to do that we do not have a relationship with China. We have a relationship with Taiwan. So I think that there is going to be uh, another way of seeing things. They are going to create new relationships also because they're, they, they are also understanding the, the need to prepare themselves uh, in, in the possible scenario of a war. But um, also to stop the advance of Russia influence in China, Chinese influence in Latin America. Maybe they uh, could try to change and to um, create better relationships with a Latin American government. Let me put it this way. If this was a soccer game, China is, is winning 3-0 and uh, the USA and it's halftime. So, so China certainly has a lot more power in Latin America right now uh, uh, than the U.S., or, or at least it's, 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 it's very similar, but the U.S. has no long-term um, policy to counteract this influence. Dr. Jimenez shared some views about the role of development and democracy in the international relations of these superpowers with Latin America. One thing that is important to look at is that China doesn't really... Uh, let's say, discriminate on ideological or regime level. So it uh, engaged a lot and continues to engage, for example, with uh, Venezuela, but also engage with Piñera uh, in the case of Chile. So on the one hand, you have a, a formerly uh, left uh, authoritarian government, and uh, in Chile, you had a democratic right-leaning government. So Obviously, that gives China a huge access to all of these countries, and they have long had uh, this, uh, yeah, global strategy um, to offer loans, really cheap loans, and investments and infrastructure, which is something that is very appealing to Latin American uh, countries, particularly now in the, well, we're not really in the aftermath of COVID, but. Uh, with the negative consequences that COVID has uh, brought to, to the region, particularly to society in terms of, as we discussed, uh, inequality uh, and exclusion, these loans or the, the, the financial access that China gives uh, to Latin American countries is really important. Uh, now, at the same time, you, ha you do have these tensions uh, right between the U.S. and China sort of trying to compete for the region, but it it seems, for example, now that we're uh, looking forward to the summit of the Americas, that the U.S. does need to step up its game uh, in the region if it wants to be a competitive uh, ally and the most relevant ally, I would, see, I would say. 
so I think it, it, it's uh, very intuitive to understand why China wants to continue with this global strategy. It doesn't only do it in, in Latin America, but also, for example, in the African continent. Uh, and on the other hand, it's important if the U.S., uh, let's say, wants to promote um, uh, democracy in the region and is also more committed beyond uh, uh, growth and development, uh, you know, it's a question for the U.S. really. Is the U.S. Uh, committed to growth, development and democracy at the same time? Uh, if so, uh, it, reads, it needs to rethink um, the way that it engages with uh, Latin American governments, uh, the way it engages with uh, more democratic and, and less democratic governments uh, in the region. And it needs to also present economic and viable alternatives that can compete uh, with China uh, uh, in Latin America. The next few months will be pivotal in determining the policy direction of the region. We will be watching closely from the Balbarkin School of Government as the outcomes will impact the lives of more than a half a billion people. That's all for this week's episode and thank you for listening in. Be sure to join us again next time. This podcast was created by students at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. This episode was co-hosted and developed by Lucas Pombo and Ivan Chanis with the support of Melissa Lockett. Our executive producers are Reed Leesk and Livy Beha. 